Uh, we are continuing this morning with the book of James. We started last week reading this New Testament book with just such wonderful things in it. And the, the sermons are being called doers of the word because that's kind of James's thing, this idea that we should be people who have faith inside and live it on the outside as well. And so today, James approaches it here in the second chapter of his book in terms of faith. Let us open with prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our reason. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Who are we saving a seat? If you've ever flown Southwest Airlines, you'll know that they're somewhat unique in their boarding practices. I still remember the first time my dad ever took a Southwest flight for a work trip. He came home like he had seen something revolutionary, described to us this fanciful world without a sign seated. That's the Southwest way, as I would eventually one day experience for myself, huddled outside of a gate listening to an a, uh, agent there describing the instructions on how to work to board the plane. As directed, we would line up in groups A, M, and B, and then C, each group getting on to the plane, and once you're on the plane in your group, you can sit in any open seat. The boarding groups were assigned based on how early you checked in the day before, and that boarding group made all the difference in the world. Group A had their pick of window and aisle seats, front or back of the plane as they wished, and a few lucky travelers in Group A would even be able to snag an exit row. Group C, on the other hand, was described to us by the joking agent over the intercom as standing for center seat. Some people love this boarding method, and others just fly different airlines. The upside seems to be this very democratic nature. They eliminate a first class entirely, and they give every traveler an equal chance at prime seating for their flying experience. Democratic, egalitarian, at least that's how it's imagined to be, but with one curious wrinkle. What do you do when you board with group A? you see an iPad sitting on the seat you would like to sit in. This is the dilemma that faced Stu Weinschenker, a six-foot-two sales rep and frequent flyer boarding with Group A and hoping to claim two seats across the aisle from each other in the coveted exit row with extra legroom for him and his wife. One of the seats was open, but the other was occupied by this iPad, which was left by the middle seat passenger who was saving it for her boyfriend was set to board somewhere hundred of people later or so with the stragglers in group C. And so what should Stu Weinschenker do? I'd actually like to take a poll this morning to see where we land on the matter. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to present two options and invite you to pick one. If you're worshiping online, let us know in the live chat which you choose. If you're here in person, just raise your hand, and we won't be counting hands, but we'll get a sense of where we're at. I think it'll be interesting. I'll give the options, and then invite your hand. So here's your two options. In Stu Weinschenker's position, would you either, one, move on and look for another seat, or two, nicely pass back the iPad to the woman in the middle seat and remind her that Southwest has an open-seating policy. So here we go. Let's see how we think. If you would go for the first, look for another seat, raise your hand. 
If you would go with the second, taking the seat that the woman had saved. Go ahead and raise your hand. Hmm. Interesting. Stu Lineshack, or in this uh, actual experience, went with the second option. He kindly passed back the iPad and even suggested that the woman in the middle seat try saving the window seat instead. This was all as reported in the USA Today article on the encounter. She seemed to take it okay, but then when her boyfriend did board a few minutes later, the woman burst into tears and told him that Weinshaker had intimidated her. Who is in the right? We're going to try a second poll, which is related to, but not exactly the same as the first. Here are your two options. Do you think that under Southwest boarding policy, passengers should, one, be able to save seats for companions in later morning groups, or two, not save seats at all? Here we go. If you're in favor of the first, saving seats, raise your hand. If you go with the second, no seat saving, raise your hand. The USA Today article, and, and no shortage of related blogs, tweets, forum posts, all indicate that this is a contentious and evenly divided debate. So the fact that all of us here are in favor of no saving seats says something interesting about us, though I'm not sure what exactly. Interestingly, Southwest Airline itself is decidedly non-committal on the issue and refuses to say whether seat saving is allowed or forbidden. This is a challenge for the flight attendants who sometimes have to de-escalate situations without a clear policy about who is in the right, but it is incredibly beneficial to Southwest as a company. By not setting a rule, Southwest can board their passengers faster than other airlines because they do with this process, while allowing passengers to believe that they got a bargain by snagging a good, sheet, a good seat, or at least had an equal shot at that good seat, even if it didn't work out. But in a fascinating book on the hidden rules of ownership that rule our everyday lives, which was written by two law professors, it's pointed out that in Southwest's ruleless approach, uh, their ruleless approach can allow the privileges of our everyday world to upset what seems like a fair system. It could be that sexism is at work in the realities of their boarding dynamic, with men saving seats and putting armrests while expecting women to give way. Seat saving itself could be a cover for racial discrimination, picking and choosing who you want to sit next to. As the authors write, most people want to be good sports. So the nicer or less privileged party continues toward the worst seats farther in the back. Because even a system that looks and feels egalitarian can be a passive cover for the favoritism that plagues the world. The system doesn't have to be intentionally tilted in the favor of the privileged for that to be the default setting just the same. Brothers and sisters, James says, don't show favoritism. He essentially makes the point in a single verse. Then he drives it home in four verses, and he leaves no doubt at the end of 17 verses that this is an imperative issue of the faith. It is a surprising amount of energy poured into a seemingly obvious point. I mean, who would even argue against it? It has always been abundantly clear since time immemorial that we are not to discriminate against people. We Christians know this. We have always known this. 
And yet it must be said, because it happens all the time, even in churches, even to the most well-intentioned students of the scriptures. James, who writes with clarity and never seems to waste a word, knows to linger here, because what seems obvious in theory is rarely obvious in practice. Crass discrimination is easy to spot, but even the system that looks and feels egalitarian can be a passive cover for the favoritism that favors the Imagine two people coming into your meeting, James says. One has a gold ring and fine clothes, while the other is poor and dressed in filthy rags. Who are we saving a seat for? Well, we know the right answer, but the church hasn't always been good at living it out. For the first 1,400 years or so of the Christian faith, churches didn't have fixed seating like we do today, and so worshipers would stand or kneel or move about the sanctuary throughout the course of the worship service. It all changed with the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, which so emphasized the sermon and worship that clergy lengthened their preaching, and there was no way their congregations were making it through that without sitting down. And so this led to the birth of the pew, which in turn led to hundreds of years of getting James's hypothetical exactly wrong. Pews were expensive, see, and so churches invited families to buy their pew, both paying for their construction but also retaining ownership of the pew throughout the years. Deeds to your pew were drawn up and preserved in the legal records of the time and were passed on from generation to generation. Many pews were ornate and contained in a box, like a box in a stadium, that sort of stadium seating, the walls of which would keep out the cold winter draft while the locking door kept out all of the pews open. Some churches were called closed church, which meant that you could only attend if you owned a box with a pew to sit in. Well, some other churches did provide a few rows of open seating in the back for anyone who didn't own a pew. In a pamphlet published in 1844 titled Church Pews, Their Origin and Legal Incident, described these additional seats like this. Lastly, Furthest from the minister, pulpit, communion table, and under the gallery, in the darkest and coldest place in the church, the poor, the old, and the infirm are accommodated. This is not an egalitarian system. As the author of the, this pamphlet wrote, the distinctions of aristocracy, rank, class, wealth, and station have eaten their way into the very heart of the church. The world is evidently in possession of our churches, for rank and family, pride and wealth have all their usual marks and distinction within as well as without. So why then did the church persist in allowing such a discriminatory system? There were some clergy and laity who spoke out against it, as with the author of this pamphlet, but they were drowned out by economic concerns. Particularly in the United States, where churches weren't publicly funded, the sale and rental of pews provided much of the funding for building and maintaining church buildings. Now eventually, the Christian argument won out, and pews became the free and open seating that we know today, where it's tradition and not property deeds that keep us seated in the same spots for but it's hard to shake the recognition of just how easily and thoroughly the favoritism of the world 
made its way into the church. And neither is it just a recent phenomenon there with the invention of food. In the 400s, just a few hundred years after Christ physically walked the earth, an early monk named Saint Eulos Gesetic said, We monks come fawning to the rich to get what we want. We call them benefactors and protectors of Christians, attributing every virtue to them, even though they may be and so James asks, don't the wealthy make life difficult for you? Aren't they the ones who drag you into court? And more than simply speaking to any specific situation of his readers, James here is reminding his listeners how often they have found themselves harmed because the world prioritizes the privileged, and asking them why then they would allow the favoritism, which is so harmful outside of the church walls, to ever flourish within them. We are meant to hold ourselves to a different, higher standard. James names this as the royal law, the rule that governs and orders the very kingdom of God. And he describes it by quoting Leviticus 19, the same passage that Jesus himself frequently references in the Gospels, love your neighbor as yourself, it says. And so referencing both the teachings of Jesus and the Torah at once, it is clear that James sees the love of neighbor as central to our faith, as instructed throughout all of Scripture and fulfilled in the person of Christ. It is not a vague hope or an ideal dream, but in fact the carefully ordered instruction that God has been setting forth from the very beginning. This is the context for the difficult portion of Scripture where James says the person who fails at one point of the law is guilty for all of it. James isn't trying to keep us in fear of ever doing something wrong here. Instead, he's saying that all the instructions of Scripture stem from this central position of love of neighbor. So one who discriminates between people hasn't crumbled just a minor element of the faith but missed the entire meaning of the law of love which comes. James builds on this argument with an echo of the book's first chapter, provocatively asking what good it could possibly be to say we have faith, but do nothing to show it. As we explored last week, the acts of faith cannot save us, but do reliably reveal the state of our inner faith. We can claim the impartial ideals of the faith, but if we do not put them into practice around us, well then, our words are little more than a passive cover for the favoritism that plays the world. A living faith insists that we confront the subtle pull towards partiality, it insists that we stand up from our comfortable seats to speak out, but also to act out pushing back against the stratification of the world by embracing our neighbors with the law of love. What good is it to tell the naked to stay warm and the hungry to be fed, James asks, unless we share the clothes from our closet and the meal from our table. Our faith in Christ makes itself known in this way. And while James uses rich and poor to make his points, they are just one example that speaks to a larger we live in a world that judges, discriminates, and plays favorites for any number of reasons, while worshiping a God who welcomes and discriminates and loves all 
with abundance. Whichever of the two is better reflected in the church says everything about whether the body of Christ there retains any connection to Jesus and the law of love that he promised. This is what Christ's church Christ's church welcomes the poor and homeless neighbors. Christ's church welcomes lost and lonely neighbors. Christ's church welcomes weak and weary neighbors. Christ's church welcomes gay and lesbian neighbors. Christ's church welcomes bisexual, transgender, and queer neighbors. Christ's church welcomes black and Latino neighbors. Christ's church welcomes our rough and tumble youthful neighbors. Christ's church welcomes divorced neighbors and single parent neighbors. Christ's church welcomes Republican neighbors and Democrat neighbors. Christ's church welcomes our disabled neighbors. Christ's church welcomes our immigrant neighbors. Christ's church welcomes all of our neighbors. Christ's church welcomes you. Christ's church welcomes you. Christ's church welcomes us all. And so, welcome all. Just as we have long done and long will continue to do. One of the core values so visibly present in our congregation is our gracious welcome, our emphasis on community and inclusion in that community. It's not always easy. And as the American church continues to decline across the board, a decline, by the way, is equally represented across denominations and interpretive leanings, well, there can be the subtle inclination to welcome primarily those who can help the church, those who can fund it or who look like what we want the church of our future to be. Old favoritism can be subtle. But we don't play by the world's rules. And the law of love, a successful church, a thriving church, a church with a living faith, is the one that remains deeply connected to Christ who seats all people at his table. A church with a living faith is saving seats, but not for whom they want to come, but the neighbors that God has called us to be in relationship with, so that we might welcome them with joy and say, look, we made a place for you. You've saved your seat. Come, join us. And then we will sit together, side by side, all loved and abundance. Friends, I invite us to continue in worship as we sing our next.